Welcome to the McNuttiest Dimension. I'm Chris McNutt. I'm glad that you could stop on by. Take a break from all that other third dimensional stuff that is whipping around willy-nilly in your world. This is a consciousness salon where we can just get into the groove of what it means to be human and all its nuances and fabulous waves of bullshit and wonderment that rip around in this dimension that we call being human and believe it or not, friends, you chose this trip. And not only did you choose it, There's a lot of messages coming through that say you were very specific, in fact, incredibly granular in the detail of what you chose um, as this lifetime. Now, it depends on your level of consciousness, of course, because some stories go that when you're maybe a young soul, new to the human world. It's like being a kid in an amusement park and you bust out of the car and you get your pass and you just start riding rides like crazy and you go from one ride to the next. And it's like, well, I'm on the roller coaster. I'm on the tilt world. I'm on the thing that shakes you upside down and the drop of doom. And those are like lifetimes. You just kind of fly through incarnation after incarnation until, you know, you're a few hours into your, your amusement park journey. You know, you've had cotton candy and a whole bunch of greasy food and you've been on like 19 rides and now you're puking behind the corn dog stand because that's how it goes. And some would say that uh, same thing kind of happens to us in the path of human incarnations till we get to the point of not just ripping around, you know, doing whatever we feel like because there's karmic repercussions to our actions and our choices. And that's one of the reasons we're puking behind the corndog stand. So we start to take a little bit more care and consideration with sculpting the life. And we, before we pop in here, we work with guides. We, uh, we choose the environment that we're coming into. We choose our family situation. We choose our language, our country, the religion, uh, the best experience, whatever the mission is, whatever we've kind of, you know, predetermined that, yeah, I'm going in. This is, it's almost like the gym workout I'm going to do today. I'm doing arms, man. I'm doing my calves. It's like, I'm coming in here to do a mission and to work hard on something on a soul level. So I've picked this very particular environment and life circumstances from parents to family members to handicaps, some would say, in order to learn what my soul needs to learn this time around. So if you look at it that way, it's like, holy shit. So you mean I chose everything that's going on, that I am the divine creator being that is actually, this is a creative piece of artwork my lifetime. I chose it all. And not just that, you pop in with the amnesia, so you forget all the planning you've done, and then you're just, bam, you're in the middle of it. You're riding the roller coaster of the life, the roller coaster that you planned, all the twists and the turns. Most of them, I think that it's uh, left kind of open to some interpretation because this is a free will zone after all. So, um, but there's something about that environment that we choose to drop into that sets the stage 
for the rest of our adventures here. So in that context of choosing the life circumstances and the environment in which we plop into in order to provide that foundation for us, um, those initial experiences uh, for the rest of our lives. My guest today on McNuttiest Dimension is Bob Melvin, uh, a professor emeritus who retired from a career teaching political philosophy at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. But Bob began his life in the small prairie town of Pearson, Manitoba, just as the Depression was coming to a close. And he grew up on a farm in that endless, secluded, flat splendor and the mind-blowing remoteness that the Canadian prairies delivers in abundance. But Bob left the farm and he got himself an education where he eventually ended up at Western as a well-loved professor of political science for many years, but also with a curiosity for the other realms of being outside that Western academic mind. And he studied learned masters in the range from the Buddha to Plato, and also deepened as his life went on into a meditation practice uh, that involved uh, traveling to extended retreats at the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And Bob still maintains a real mystical Buddhist perspective that is rooted in those initial experiences in the remote prairie landscape of his childhood. And Bob is also the grandfather of my two oldest children, so it gives me great joy to welcome a dear old friend to McNuttiest Dimension. Let's all welcome Bob Melvin. I'm going back to where I come from, where the honeysuckle smells so sweet it damn near makes you sick. I used to think my life was humdrum. But I sure did learn a lesson that is bound to stick. The, my first remembrances, really, were as a, I don't know how old I'd be, I might have been three, sitting out on a concrete step in front of this old house, farmhouse, and wild geese going over. And they were low in the sky. They were looking for a place to feed or to uh, uh, nest down for the night, some water source. And the sound of them was absolutely awesome. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them were talking, not just a few. But those mammoth flocks that would come over, one of my earliest memories do you remember it as a as as a peaceful time? Was it yes. was it happy? It was happy. It was peaceful. It was it was filled with uh, a kind of power of adventure. Uh, it's like you grew up in a bit of a monastery, or you you grew a up on a on a, in a meditation retreat. Exactly, and the and my my life pattern as a kid. I don't know how old I was, but we had this giant barn on the property, uh, and it had an upstairs that was a, the loft area was maybe oh god, could have been forty feet high. So there were big doors 
way up in the loft, and ladder that would go up there and a platform. And I don't think anybody knew that I would go into the loft, climb these stairs way up to the top and, and lay there on that platform. And there was a door that would, would open, of course, uh, to the outside. And I could lie there on this platform and, and look way down into the, into the barnyard and you must have been able to see 500 miles. Absolutely. 500 miles at least. And the, 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 the animals in the front of the barn would look like they were miniatures, you know, from that distance. Swallows in and out, darting away the, the way barn swallows do. Owl would occasionally come and, and, and sit, at the, sit at the end looking for mice. There were always mice around. Amazing variety of, of things going on. Pigeons cooing, I remember, is one of the gentlest sounds. Well, doves, you know, they're doves. That was my, that was my preserve. But I'd daydream up there. I'd have all these wild imaginary things going on. And it was fairly solitary outside of your family. Like you were, yes. you were out on the farmland, miles yes. from the yep. next farm and town, and yep. any kids your own age. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a a real period as a kid of of having my own time, my own space. I never played much with my brother ever. I just came to that realization recently that we never really did. I had a cousin who was the same age as I was. We were in the same grade, and they lived less than half a mile away. So we would get together and play. And we were good friends and still are, like best friend Don Melvin, you know. I mean, there's no, no, no hesitation about that. Did you have a relationship with the, the nature around and the, yes. the other? Was there, was there any kind of wildness, or was this all just sort of like farm animal and— uh... There was a wildness. There was a wildness. I never really separated the material and the spiritual until later, and that came through Christianity, likely. But to me, it was all just natural. Uh, but there sure was a sense of there being something in the air you know, there was some invisible presence, I think. I was always maybe aware of some invisible presence. Did it feel like the Christian God you were being taught about, or did it feel like something else? It, feel like something, it felt like something else. Like, uh, I don't know what you'd say. It's the spirit of things, feeling of things. I thought that animals had a, had a like horses, uh, real something about them. They weren't just dumb animals. They were they 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 were smart. And father would remark on that from time to time. He was say, "No, don't don't you know? Don't take any everything away from these animals. They pretty they they know a lot. They know a lot." Yeah. And he was the first one that ever mentioned crows as being really smart. 
pay attention to crows, that they were, they were really smart. Yeah. What do you remember about church in that first, you know, those first Christian teachings? And how did that feel in sort of your heart and soul? I don't think I felt that much. I never thought much in terms of religion and categories of, of that. We did go to church. We went to a kind of Sunday school. But um, it didn't mean much to me then. did later. Uh, I went through a period when I was, oh, God, maybe about 11 or 12 when I thought about being a United Church minister for a year. I never mentioned that to anybody. <laughs> uh, and it passed when I started to get interested in, in, in girls. But before that, did you feel some deep... I did. I felt some deep spiritual presence. And of course, when I say that, I'm using my modern words for it, but uh, I don't know what I would call it then. I knew that there was something going on in the world uh, besides what I could see. Uh, animals give you that feeling sometimes. But the presence just of sitting up there on that loft, um, well, I'll never forget it. It was a, it was a turning point in my life uh, that you weren't alone, that there was something going on, that uh, this, was, uh, this, was a big, this was a big trip. This was something pretty interesting. Now, when did you first get a taste of... Say alternate spirituality, like you grew up in the Christian church out in the middle of the prairie. When did you get a first awareness that there was just other ways of thinking about things that wasn't that Christian model? I don't think it occurred to me in the early years when I was spending a lot of time alone on that platform in the high loft barn uh, of categorizing it in any way particularly I used to go down to that station every evening just to watch the Pullman train come bombing in and then one night that great temptation got the best of me and drove me to a life of sin. So you leave Pearson and you go off to school in Brandon and you're and right. you're taking uh, just general BA yes. with uh, with uh, yes. focus on political science. It wasn't until I was well into college that that I realized that uh, that political philosophy was uh, was was something that I really dug, that really, really appealed to me. Were there any particular philosophers that really got their hooks into you? I liked Plato from the beginning. There was something about him, uh, Rousseau as well, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And it was a common man with Rousseau. With Plato, it was the idea that... Uh, 
uh, there were other ways to th of thinking. There, there were there was a higher dimension uh, that Plato was always talking about. That uh, uh, somewhere where wisdom lay, uh, there was some 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 something, and I was I was somehow uh, given to thinking that way. That there were there were higher ways of thinking. At first, I associated that with the with the religion. That because the higher ways equaled God in some something, way. Something, something, yeah, something to 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 stretch for, beyond the the human bondage, uh, beyond war and and anger and greed and hate and that kind of stuff. That there was another, there was another way to live, that wasn't uh, cast down, burdened with the. Uh, uh, with the emotional stuff that uh, we just, you know, seemed immature to me. So with Plato, you had this first concept for you that wisdom and these other realms, maybe other dimensions, something separate than just this Christian model of earth and yeah. and heaven and God. Yes, it was a it was a relief because I I struggled with Christianity. The idea of authority—I uh, couldn't—I couldn't get a lot of it. Uh, the organized part of Christianity, I couldn't handle. As I mentioned, I had a notion of going into the church as a minister when I was a kid because it somehow appealed to me. It was some different thing, and you got up there and you talked and you made up lectures and and you you know you it was my idea of. From sitting there in in the in the choir watching the preacher go at it, it I kind of like that idea, you know. It's, it's, I, and I didn't mind going to church for that reason. That sometimes you might hear something interesting. This guy might say something interesting. There weren't many women then uh, as as ministers. It came to be quite a few later. But uh, I thought, okay, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. He commanded quite the audience. It was quite focus yeah. that he had for the that hour on a Sunday morning. Oh yeah, they they couldn't do much else. Uh, it was church after all, and you weren't supposed to cough or. Uh, that was one of the problems we had s sitting in the choir was, uh, father would go to sleep in church. And then he would snore, or he would he would start talking in his sleep. Uh, it was uh, it was always uh, risky. <laughs> Mother was always horrified sitting in the choir. Of course, my two, my older brother and I and, and mother were in the choir all the time. Younger brother Brian was to when he got old enough to go to church was. He was to keep father awake, so that was his job, <laughs> and he did a pretty good job. But too, yeah. So when you started digging into Plato, as you said later, as yeah. as a as a prof and a yes. teacher, yes, what did you start to discover about Plato? Oh, I thought that he was uh, not well understood. I thought there was that he was he was saying something. Uh, a little bit different than what uh, what they got caught up on, in a way that there was much more of a humanist uh, about him. Although there was a 
obviously that old Greek patriarchal kind of kind of attitude. Uh, like there was no hardly ever mention of women in Plato's stuff because women in Greek society were, you know, they were just appendages of the of the of the male dominant position. Uh, but he has a bit of a mystical side to him. Yes, he, he did. Oh, that was uh, that was part of what drew me to him. Oh, very fundamentally, uh, there's another world to Plato. Um, than this world, uh, there's a there's a mysterious kind of world of forms. There's a uh, in the myth of air. He 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 talks. Uh, air is somebody who has uh, has uh, died, but he's sent back uh, from from heaven to to tell people what what's up there. And he talks about how we we choose our own lives. That uh, that where he went to. Uh, everybody picked a lot, you know. I got number four. Well, you've got number thirty-four. I I choose a life before you do, and somebody comes out and they cast all these patterns of lives on the ground, and you can go around and you can see. Well, there's a tailor, or a, a, a policeman, or a king, or a whatever, <coughs> and choose the pattern of your next life. That we really do choose our own lives was the was the gist of it, and that's more akin to the yogis and the Rinpoche and the lamas. Absolutely, and that's a connection that occurred to me. That he's 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 a, there's a lot more Easternism, Eastern philosophy in Plato than people had realized. Uh, not not thorough. I mean, it's not thoroughgoing. It's it's. It's not got that easy yearning thing of Eastern philosophy where you're drawn into the cycle of, of the yin and the yang and the unity of it all. Not that yet. There's a contradiction in, in Plato. And still logical yes. thinking very, was very much thought to be the, yeah. the, the, the pinnacle of well, the way that the approach. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, but he was obviously a deep feeler and an experiencer of these realms. Like, oh. does he? Did he mention his practice or meditation? Was there ever anything like that, or was he just talking about what he experienced and could see? Somehow? There wasn't much overt talk about it, but he would parade the life of Socrates as his main model. He didn't. He did it implicitly because he was Socrates' pupil, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And he taught Aristotle. Yes, he, that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. He hung out with this these young people that would follow Socrates around, and uh, they were students only in the sense that they kind of hung out. It wasn't classrooms or anything. It was just Socrates out in the marketplace and. And Plato is one of these young guys that was just completely drawn uh, to Socrates as a model. And it wasn't just that he was a fast talker and a logical thinker. Uh, Socrates was a noted warrior uh, in, in the Athenian uh, experience. Uh, uh, Socrates was, uh, you didn't want to take on Socrates in a, 
sword fighter or anything. He had a reputation of uh, being formidable, like utterly formidable. Uh, and and uh, Plato would use some uh, of the great Greek military uh, people in his in his dramas to indicate that that this was coming right from the battlefield. This wasn't somebody's conjecture about about uh, Socrates. It was people who'd fought with him on the field. But Socrates was also this paragon of this Athenian logical yes. kind of thought yes. and that approach. But there must have also been some transmission there as well. You know, like the yogis and the lamas, they talk about you just get some mystical transmission. There's there's words and thoughts and concepts that the guru or the teacher is teaching the student, but there is on a deeper level a transmission of energetics is taking place as well. Absolutely. And Socrates made no bones about it. There was a voice, he said, that would come to him, and it would deter him from from doing something, would like stop him in the middle of a sentence. Uh, it, it was like a, he, he talked about that. He, he talked about it as a voice that would come into his mind that would, that would never, he said it would never urge him on, but it would just uh, stop him from, from, from doing something. We would call that a spirit guide today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and he was very clear about that. And he would go and, and he would he would get into meditative trances. Uh, there was a party at this uh, famous guy Agathon's place. I forget the name of the play. Maybe it's Agathon. And uh, they're sitting around waiting for Socrates. Has anybody seen Socrates? And somebody comes in and says, yeah, he's, he's sitting in a trance in somebody's porch yard. You know, I mean, he's just, oh, and Agathon says, oh, just leave him. He'll, he'll show up when he's, when he's ready. And he's in this, he's in these mystical states where he's just there, just absorbing it, taking it in. And they knew that about Socrates. That was part of his, his, his way. That was part of his way. Besides logic, that also sounds like just tapping into some deeper oh, energies oh, of the beyond. Absolutely. He, both sides going, like the, the rational, logical side of the mind and that connection. Yeah, with, left brain, right brain, or whatever, yeah, the exactly. head in the heart space. Exactly. They, he had them. He had them cornered, or they had him cornered. Yeah. After Socrates, I think Plato was around thirty when Socrates was put to death. Well, then he 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 disappeared. Plato disappeared for maybe twelve, fifteen years. They didn't know where he was, and he never said much about it. But it sounded like he'd been to Egypt. He'd been to. He was, he was going up the mountain. He was, he was really. And at that time, Egypt was a learned center of the spiritual arts. You know, yes. similar to what Tibet and India became yes. later. Uh, but Egypt was, oh, was yeah. solidly rooted at that time for, exactly. for the deeper arts of yeah. connection. That's where I think it happened uh, with him. 
Socrates' death was um, was a terrible blow to Plato and and some of the others who had been part of the gang that hung out and in the marketplace with him, listening to him or conversing with him. Uh, that was like the end of the world to them. That was uh, that was uh, something they could never forgive the Athenians for was putting Socrates to death. I took my hat and fourteen dollars and I went through all the troubles of the life that always follows when you're rich and hunting romance but my hunting days are over I can tell you that So you started teaching in the in the 60s and so that was a time of a lot of great social change and new oh. ideas and oh, yeah. you know also a time when the eastern philosophies kind of it was set, started to settle in and all, couldn't quite say mainstream but they no. they they settled in to the the first world in north america yeah. and first world thought yeah it wasn't it wasn't mainstream uh, at all when i started <laughs> when i was teaching in fact i had a curious reputation of being interested in that stuff uh, at Western, maybe maybe uh, University of Western Ontario was a bit a bit centralist, right wing. But when I came to Western, it was pretty mainstream. There weren't. I was a real radical uh, on the outside because I did entertain a strong interest in these people, and I had crazy uh, people on my reading lists, you know, like Carlos Castaneda. I thought they should read that, you know. <laughs> These are the political philosophy students. Yes. And you're recommending Carlos Castaneda. Yes, yes. Yeah, think widely. Don't take it all for granted. And, of course, Castaneda has, uh, there's a great similarity with him and Plato. Like there's a mystical... Uh, side, uh, Castaneda, clearly, I mean, there's a, you're in the world of magic, you know, I mean, make, make the best of it. It's there. It's part of life. Don't dismiss it it's because it doesn't fit. <laughs> and as a refresher for some that may be listening, Carlos Castaneda and the teachings of Don Juan, the Mexican indigenous shaman that he went and studied with, those books started to come out in the 60s as well. Yes. He started off as an anthropologist and studying it that way, but he, he soon became Don Juan's student. And then the, the books are written from that perspective exactly. as this neophyte uh, exactly. shaman student. Book, book three starts to really unwind the story. Books one and two are pretty much as a trying to do the anthropological gig. But by book three, he's uh, the journey to Ixland. It's, uh, he's caught. He's caught in it. And, uh, I got caught reading it. Uh, I said, yes, that's right. Yes, there is the noggle. Yes, there is this uh, sense of uh, something uh, beyond out there that's a real force, could be a real force in our lives. And, of course, that's in a way uh, you can bend that to Christianity right away. I mean, if you're, if you're not 
a stuck-in-the-woods Christian. Like, the real message of Christianity was the sky's the limit. Come on, you know, open up. Uh, live, live. Jesus was the greatest shaman of them all. Absolutely. Absolutely, in a way. Yeah, like the Buddha, you know. Anything uh, Eastern by that point? It yes. crept into your... Yes, yes. There was a... I was just going to say that. There were... A Suzuki. There was a a small Suzuki book that I had on a lot, and all oh, the the Tao of physics came out, and that was a that was an interesting. There was a couple of chapters in the Tao of physics that was really really good, really good. Uh, Richard Allport, uh, be here now. Ram Das. Ram Das. The first chapter of Ram Das, where he talks about his own journey. I didn't really have that on the reading list because it was a big. It's a big, expensive thing when you when you buy it. And there's only that little first part that I thought was relevant. I never even read most of the last part of it. But that's a that's a good thing for students to read, because there's a Westerner that actually makes this trip, and, and it just turns them right upside down. Yeah. So as the molder of young minds, as you were a young professor at the University of Western Ontario, did you see that as your role? You were going to try to not necessarily flip minds upside down, but just broaden perspectives. Yes. That was my idea of education, University of Education in particular, and that seemed to be a useful way of uh, of uh, of going about it, like of of trying to turn the corner, you know. Uh, when you pick through Plato and and even Aristotle in places, uh, did you find yourself doing that, seeking out these sort of mystical nuggets or paragraph or two within Plato and oh, other places, and then oh, presenting sure. them to your students? Oh sure, oh yeah. Yeah, and I'd start every lecture with uh, little snippets of quotations from people, uh, just to kind of set the, the the stage. No, I'm 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 afraid I went boldly <laughs> about <laughs> about the business of trying to uh, awaken that the the the. the the, get the idea there that there's more to this than meets the eye. Come on, let's think. Let's let this Western drivel we've been brainwashed in. Let's look through that. Let's come on. Let's look outside of that stuff. Yeah. When did the Eastern spiritual teaching start seeping into your own life and practice? Well, at the same time as I started to to do it, to read the stuff in, in class and use it in class. Oh, early on. I don't remember when I started to, to meditate, but it was a long time ago. Likely back before meditation was, was yeah. mainstream and popular. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And again, it happened through, through odd ways. Like there was a group called Ananda Marga, that were a kind of a, a radical beat drums and meditate and chant 
group, and I hung out with them when they were around, and hung out with anybody that was into those kinds of things. Something different. Yeah. When I was in England that time, I uh, a couple of years in England, I went to all those offbeat things that I could find, like Findhorn was a big thing then, the way they lived, the way they lived communally and stuff. It was interesting. I, I was taken with it. Yeah. And those were some new ideas coming forth at the Damn time. Damn right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good ideas. Good ideas. They didn't always work. Communal living's not for everybody. Shit. I met a gal in Kansas City And she winked at me and asked me if I'd like to step around And I said, yep that's what I'm here for Then she said she'd take me to the hottest spots in town She mentioned things she'd have to fix up So she took my $14 But there must have been a mix-up She's been gone since Thursday evening And I have a hunch I'll never see that gal no more so then what happens to you as you start to meditate and bring that practice into your life on a regular basis? Well, it was pretty interesting. It was, it was fundamental in a way, relaxing, I think, is basically what meditation does to me. You're not, your mind isn't chasing all the, all the worry, whirling stuff. Or if it is, it's just noticing it, sitting at that place, of yeah, just, not not engaging with it or having business with it. That's right. You you you. It's there. You're not going to get rid of it. I mean, the mind's going to chatter. It's the way it is. That's what we're stuck with: chatter, chatter mind. But uh, yeah, just ignore it. It's not, you don't have to go with it. Watch mm -hmm. it. Just watch it. As a, as the Zen people, I mean, the Zen people, I think are. In the end, I've come right back to them. They're, I think just watch it, you know, just be patient and watch it. It's, it's doing its job. It's not, <laughs> you don't have to be upset about it or excited about it. Just that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think at times uh, it, it, it'll slow down. You, you, you know, if, you're wa if you just watch it, it, it does tend to slow down. But you had a calling to do more. You, this was this was growing within you. Oh yeah, it wasn't just I'm just meditating and observing my thoughts. Yes, this is you. You felt that sparking deeper seeking. Yes, yes. I don't know how it came on to me. I I, I would I would be delighted to be able to uh, uh, revisit those years and find out just exactly. Uh, what it what it was that uh, led me to actually go down and uh, join uh, one of their uh, sessions. And this is the Insight Meditation Center in Massachusetts. Yes, Joseph Goldstein and uh, oh, I forget the other two that set it up. Sharon Salzberg. Sharon was there, or uh, quite a lot too. And the third guy wasn't. Jack Cornfield. Jack Cornfield. He had uh, his place out at uh, 
On the West Coast. Yeah, Spirit Rock. Then. Yeah, Spirit Rock. Uh, he was there for briefly for one occasion when the three of them were there. It was kind of a reunion, 30 years maybe or something since they set it up. I don't know what it was, but the three of them were there, and it was interesting. Um, what was that experience like to be immersed in, uh, you know, the deeper side of these teachings? Because they spent some time working in, you know, they come from the, the Thai school of things of the real Theravada Buddhism. They they had some serious training and I think it's wonderful what they've done to kind of bring it to the Westerners, oh, I, you know, I, kind I, of put it in this digestible I do sort too. of way that I do too. the Western concepts could oh. kind of latch hold of it. Oh, sure. I think it was a, 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 an awesome undertaking that worked, frankly, you know. I mean, there's there were the Krishnamurtis, these, there was the odd kind of guru figure that would uh, be there, uh, which were interesting too. I mean, I I, I had experiences with Krishnamurti, uh, which were good, were good. But he was, you know, I mean, some of those folks, there's an arrogant uh, side to them too that you never get in their books, but you see it when you're when you're when you're in their company for a while somehow and you say there's, there's something wrong here it's <laughs> not it's not as pure and clean as i thought uh, the, the the way it uh, turns out but that's that's pretty interesting too uh, to learn that a lot of your preconceptions about these things are completely wrong you know you <clears throat> mind you we 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 can't help ourselves we have to sort of place the thing and give it a context but I think it's one of the great lessons that all oh. spiritual seekers find that the gurus are human and that we oh. build them up in our minds oh, is yeah. that, you know, these archetypes of the Buddha sure. who never did anything wrong. And, sure. and then we expect this from our teachers, but no, they're humans. They got shit they're working through too. Absolutely. And it comes to the surface. In fact, when you do this deep spiritual work, that's when all the shit comes it starts out. starts to happen. That's right. And people like Joseph would emphasize that when you got into these, uh, when you got to see him personally. There's quite a bit of a difference. Well, obviously, he's not, he's not out on the main stage talking generally. You're talking to him individually for the 15 or 20 minutes that you have, and uh, things are a lot more pertinently personal. Or can be. He was never very personal about stuff. I could ask him questions about things, and he'd deflect it right back to me, of course. So he didn't end up doing, wasn't like going and getting a lecture. I had to do the talking. I love a Ram Das story that he tells about being meditating with 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 Joseph Goldstein, and. Having some, you know, crazy mystical experience as Ram Das often did, like went mm -hmm. off to some realm of the Buddha Lokas or something, and he just had this crazy ex experience, and then he came, and then he told. Joseph Goldstein about it. He said, oh my God, this meditation was amazing. Like he described it to him. And then he said, is Joseph Goldstein's response was he just sort of nodded and went, kind of went like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now get back on your cushion and observe your breath. <laughs> I know. Very practical. <laughs> Very practical.
Yeah, that's yeah. just an experience that you know rises and passes away. Yeah, yeah. you went off to the Buddha Loka, and yeah. you know you saw these uh, devas and danced with them, but yeah, that too shall pass. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There was a stubborn sense of not straying from reality with Joseph, uh, which I enjoyed. And you spent some long stretches there. Yes. Yeah. Three months was about the longest I spent there. I did spend five months in retreat on the West Coast uh, with Lama Dreme. And he was in retreat at the same time, so I never, I never got to see him. Uh, but it was a really, really good experience. Yeah, five months of not, not, not talking and uh, being in a little tent. And a, there was a shed there that uh, that I used that somebody else had put up uh, as a meditation spot. Just a chair and a window it would keep the bulk of the flies mosquitoes off you and that's the experience that is people going to the himalayas and just going into a cave or yeah. just building some little hut up in the hills yeah. somewhere to be close to the guru or the master yeah. and that's what they tell them to do from you know time began just you know yeah. go build yourself a little something and just sit just sit that's right just sit and watch yeah just sit and watch <clears throat> Don't worry, just sit and watch. Don't expect anything. That that was the big teaching of uh, of Joseph, and it is. I just was reading a Suzuki thing. Don't expect anything. I mean, that's what we're looking for is to get rid of expectations because it's expectations that link us to the next moment. If we're not expecting. And then we're we're free, you know. We're not we're not on the train anymore. Yeah, that's funny, but it's true. I think I think it's true. Was it tumultuous times, like in your inner being? Was you know the the these long uh, retreat times? No. Did did you find it peaceful, or was it kicking it, up all I kinds of stuff? I found it peaceful for the most part. Uh, there were some occasions when. Uh, when it would be difficult. And that would be that you would be raising, the mind would be coming at you with stuff that you'd sooner have forgotten, you know. But part of, you know, I mean, that's the thing. Release your energies because a lot of your energies are being used to keep that that stuff undercover. You don't want that intruding anymore. I guess I got to the impression that a lot of meditation is just to learn to let that stuff go, you know. Well, we gotta let it go, or it, it'll it'll choke us. Let go of that layer that's kind of suppressing. That Abs we, absolutely. Subconsciously, we might not even know is there. Absolutely, we don't know it's there consciously. Really, I don't think. But it's. I hate that word "conscious" and the unconscious and the superconscious. On you know, I mean, but we still we gotta put words to it to try to explain what it is we're trying to talk about. So. We're 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 stuck <laughs> because words are, a, as Thomas Hobbes said, a, the words are a poor man's counter. <laughs> when I get old and have a grandson, 
I'll tell him about my romance, then I'll watch his eyes pop out. The chances are he won't believe me. And he'll do the same damn thing when he grows up, no doubt. So I got a concept I want to throw at you. What's that? You mentioned, you know, Plato and his description of us choosing our lot in life and what kind of choosing what we kind of come into. And you said there was cast some numbers and it was just like four and 34 and that sort of thing. But others describe it as being a lot more specific than that, that when we're on the other side choosing to come in here, uh, it's... It's a lot more granular than just, say, uh, a profession. So, you know, with a bit of that idea, if you look back at your life now, as somebody gravitated towards meditation and those sorts of uh, philosophies yourself, you chose on some level to plant yourself on this bald, flat prairie out in the middle of nowhere as sort of your, your your start in life as that which, you know, set that foundation for you to go off and explore. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are there and how... It was a so- gift. It was a gift. And I can't explain the source, but that beginning to me was like a gift. Here you go, Bob. Uh, you're in with simple people. Uh, your mother's been a teacher. Your dad's just a simple farmer. You grow up in this part of the prairies that's uh, still horses and wagons, and and you're coming into these old Model A cars, and they run better than the Model Ts did, and. And and that was a, that was like a gift to me, and a little one room school, my God. Uh, that little one room school, Yunola, it was called. I don't know the origin of that word at all. Yunola school was the center of this little rural community. That's where people went to church. They went to school. They. Everything happened there. You voted there. Everything happened at Enola School. Uh, And that was my life. That was my early life. Uh, Often in the summer, going to school, we'd go in this uh, horse and wagon because the the roads were uh, too full of water and mud and stuff, and you'd get stuck, and you'd never get to school in time. Horse could go around it you know, and through the bush and stuff. Uh, It was a very rural beginning that I just cherish. I'm just so grateful for it. It was slow. It was measured. There was no anxieties about it. If you didn't get to school in time, who who gave a shit? I mean, nobody cared. Uh, Lots of people didn't get to school on time. You know, it 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 was great. It was great. Small town prairie opportunity was the joy of my life, McNutt. It really was. I can't imagine a context any more suited to a dude like me than that. 
So you, maybe you picked it from beyond. Maybe maybe it was a choice when you were dropping in here. It was the perfect spot. Could you wanted been. the most peaceful, mellow Could have been. spot on earth, and Could you picked been. the Manitoba Prairie. Could have been. Could have been. If if there's any if there's anything in Plato's idea of choosing the pattern of a life, you know, cast them out on the ground, and you. Have so long to go out and look at all these lives on the ground, and you pick a pattern of a life, and away you go. Uh, yeah, I got a, I got a, I got a good one. <laughs> I got a good one. But the the key to choosing a pattern of a life is that it depends on how you lived the last one. That's the ace in the hole. So it's a. Uh, it's the guy that's very cautious and he's not in any hurry and he looks them all over and takes his time. And Plato's This was in Plato's teaching. Yeah. Kind of rudimentary description of karma. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, there's no, there's no shortage of that in Plato. Oh, no. Past lives are there. I mean, it's the whole thing is a, we're going round and round. Yeah, the doctrine of... Of knowing to him, when you know something, it's recollection. You recollect it from a from a previous world, previous lives. I never realized until I was well into teaching Plato the extent to which that was a foundation of the teaching. It was like Eastern philosophy, where we've been, you know, we go round and round. Uh, it's, there's so much of that in Plato. The East and the West really do come together uh, in him, because all that rational kind of argumentative stuff is very Western. And your own balance within yourself do you see yourself as this blend of the East and the West? You know, or are you got a little bit of both going on and you've had the ability to be, you know, an academic and also a, a, a meditator um, all at once and explore Plato and Carlos Castaneda as well as Hobbes and, you know, Descartes. Do you, do you find that you've now lived a life exploring both sides? I guess when I think of it, I don't think of that, McNutt, until you raise it that way. But yes, I've been very fortunate that way. Started university and I didn't, and I never got out. You know, I, I had no intention of of that happening, and absolutely took me by surprise. It just happens that that was the way it worked. That's all. How's your heart and mind feel at this point in your life? Oh, at ease. At ease. Yeah. Pretty much at ease, I'd say. Does do you feel like there's any more exploration left to do or that oh, you're yeah. seeking oh, seeking to oh, do? Oh God. Oh absolutely. Oh absolutely. Uh yes, yes. I would love to have a period of just having a, like a retreat, meditative retreat, of just not talking for three months or just just sitting for six, eight hours a day, just sitting 
I I just I I've got a real yearning. It's still calling you. Just oh, yeah. that. Oh, oh, absolutely. That's why you popped in on the prairies. You must maybe you've been doing this for lifetimes. <laughs> maybe, maybe I've got to go back there for a year. You still have a yearning to sit. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, just yeah. sitting in that zen, yes. simple way, as just simple, observing. As simple as it comes is good for me. That's all I want. Yeah. Yeah, that's all I want. Just observing the mind and just yeah, letting just, it be. Just, just watching it. Just watching it. Just smiling at it <laughs> if you can. No, no, not really showing any emotion you want to be as bad. <laughs> oh, hell with it. I mean, sure. Sure, we don't need to try to rid ourselves of anything. I mean, in the end, come on, we're fine, we're good. Well, Bob, I hope you find the long sit that you desire that you're still seeking, and it's been a pleasure to have you here to chat about all things today. Thank you, McNutt. It's great. It's great to it's great to hang out with you. Anywhere, anytime. But he can't say I didn't warn him. But what will happen if he runs into that city gal? Gosh darn, I'm going back to where I come from. Where the mockingbird is singing in the lilac bush. Special, special heartfelt thanks to Bob Melvin for being the guest today. And also special thanks to his daughter, Michelle Melvin, my ex-partner, mother of my two oldest children, who taught me that song. She used to sing it while we drove in the car when our oldest son, Zach, was young and he was wailing. She sung that and other prairie ditties from the same era, time frame. Uh, that Bob used to sing to her because he talked about being in the church choir, but he was also in barbershop quartets in and around Pearson, Manitoba in his youth. I don't know the name of that song, but it's an old prairie ditty from that era and neighborhood. If you want to connect, it's always great to hear from you. Uh, McNuttiest is all you need to know. I'm McNuttiest on Facebook, McNuttiest on YouTube, McNuttiest on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, even though I'm hardly ever there, though I'm turning a corner into TikTok, let it be known, with the other 8 billion people on the frickin' planet, but um, and McNuttiest.com for all the podcasts and other stuff going on in the world of the McNuttiest dimension. It's always great to have you here Thanks for stopping by. I'm Chris McNutt. Thanks for checking out the McNuttiest Dimension. We'll catch you next time. McNuttiest.